Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, speaks with Dr. Bobby Pritt, Chair of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic and past president of the Binford Dammon Society for Infectious Disease Pathologists. We'll hear their conversation about leadership during COVID and the art of parasitology. We'll also hear about the lessons Dr. Pritt has taken from leading the microbiology laboratory during the pandemic and what it's like receiving specimens that are still moving. Dr. Jang is on Twitter at Sarah underscore Jang, and Dr. Pritt is on Twitter at Parasite Gal. Now here's your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. Hello, and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak to pathologists about their pursuits and interests in and outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. You can follow me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. I am so thrilled today to have as our guest, Dr. Bobby Pritt. Dr. Pritt is the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She's the past president of the Binford Damon Society of Infectious Disease Pathologists, recipient of innumerable awards, including Teacher of the Year Award, Clinical Pathology Mayo Clinic for uh, just about every year from 2010 to 2019. <laughs> uh, she's the recipient of the CAP 2020 Distinguished Patient Care Award and the 2012 Excellence in Teaching Award. She's the creator of the lauded Creepy Dreadful Wonderful Parasites blog, where she has been posting educational parasite cases of the week since 2007. She is up to case 630 uh, as of this week, I think. And that blog can be found at parasitewonders.blogspot.com. She has inspired generations uh, by her education in microbiology. And you can follow Dr. Pritt on Twitter at ParasiteGal. Welcome, Dr. Brett. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Oh, well, thank you. And that's such a kind introduction, Sarah. I just really appreciate appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. Awesome. Well, I've been looking forward to our conversation all week. And so just to start out with, you know, I always ask people, um, you know, where did you grow up? And did you always want to do medicine? Did you always want to do pathology? Yeah, so two questions. So I'll start with the first one. I grew up in northern Vermont, right up near the Canadian border. In fact, we actually had Canadian French as one of our subjects in in kindergarten, which was cool. And we were outdoors all the time. I was playing with dirt and worms and very outdoorsy tomboy. Loved it. That probably played a role later in my career choice. But no, I had no idea I wanted to be a pathologist. I knew that I was pretty good at art early on. And so that was actually my first like unofficial major. And that's what I thought I was going to do right up until high school, when I kind of all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, you know, am I sure I want to do this? I like all these other things too, biology, math, science. Um, So at that point, though, I was not thinking pathology at all. That didn't come until much later. Interesting. Actually, hearing about your childhood really resonates with me because I was totally a tomboy, loved digging around in the dirt, Mm. finding bugs, finding worms. Um, (laughs) And we'll talk more about worms later, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But I think there is a a, maybe the theme there is a lack of squeamishness, maybe. And maybe that's a good point. I think that's maybe a good trait if you're going to go into pathology, though certainly we're all squeamish about different things. And I you know, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things that I enjoy doing as a pathologist, like sticking needles in people, other people don't <laughs> have to do. So. Great. Good point. Yeah. So when do you think you got interested in medicine? What was 
that moment for you? It was actually a really long journey because once I said, oh, I don't think I want to do art. I'm not sure I want to do art for other people. I want to do it for myself. And then the question was, well, what am I going to do? And here I am. I just graduated high school. So, like, you know, my mom said, well, Bobby, you are a fast typist. Why don't you go and be a secretary? And I said, okay. So I enrolled in the local secretarial school and, and I was bored and changed my major. And I ended up changing my major 11 times. Wow. Which is pretty, probably excessive. But in a good way, I got to explore a lot of different fields and felt that I would be decent in any of them. But it wasn't until I really looked back and said, well, what did I really enjoy? You know, I'm going from career to career. And I said, you know, I really enjoyed biology. So that's when I finally went and got my bachelor's in biology, really committed and still didn't know entirely what to do with biology and ended up going to medical school because I wasn't really quite <laughs> sure. But at that point, I did know that I really enjoyed the dissection piece of biology. You know, when you dissect any Anything from earthworms to the, you know, a fetal pig and all these other things. I thought that was super cool. And I asked someone specifically, how could I do this for a career? And they said, you could be a pathologist. Oh. So that definitely, yeah, someone was, you know, even back then, people were a little bit talking about pathology. That's why I went to medical school was to be a pathologist. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And it was really that kind of anatomy that got you hooked on it. It was. Yeah. And I loved gross anatomy. I loved microbiology in uh, medical school, ended up going right into pathology. I, you know, explored all the different areas and did try to keep an open mind, but pathology definitely called to me. And in the end, that's what I ended up going into. Of course, I then took a little bit of a shift and went into microbiology. I found out that I liked microbes better than I liked things like tumors and like you said, sticking needles into people. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that was kind of cool, although I loved the idea of little life forms. It's kind of like a little zoology, all these little creatures with their own, you know, life cycles. So it's kind of like going back to basic biology and zoology in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of us find parasites to be fascinating, which is why, you know, certainly part of why you've been so amazingly successful with your blog, because I think a lot of us have that kind of fascination and in some ways, a little bit of horror <laughs> yes. creatures that could be living inside us. You know, one of my favorite things to talk about is Demodex, right? You know, that's oh, what I yeah. see all the time mm -hmm. in skin. And my medical students and my residents are just horrified to find that you have these creatures <laughs> living on your face in your pores and they come out at night and crawl around and uh, just to yeah. I just love that moment of being able to share that. And I, I, <laughs> I think that must be the case for you as well. It is. And, you know, in a way, it's kind of perfect because I realized early on, you know, I have this higher voice and people say, oh, aren't you sweet? You should be a pediatrician or, you know, that sort of thing. But of course, I wanted to do pathology and microbiology. But I thought, well, how could I use this to my advantage? Well, I decided to just embrace the fact that I might have this higher pitched voice, you know, if you're going to discuss and teach about things that really are kind of gross, that would really gross people out, but you do it sweetly. <laughs> 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 kind of a little, you know, dichotomous, you know, people are like, wait, but I think it, it resonates a little bit more, you know, that, of course, you know, showing empathy for our patients and, you know, the reason we're here in medicine, but really I'm discussing, I'm teaching my medical students really some pretty disgusting things about some pretty terrible diseases, but it's well-received and maybe that's helpful. So... <laughs> I think that's a wonderful take on it. You know, we all go through lives with our own unique skills and attributes mm -hmm. and why not harness yours to be more effective as a teacher? So that's amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. 
So we talked a little bit about a lot of the things that you considered before pathology. I always like to ask people, what do you think you would be if you weren't a pathologist? Mm. Well, if I hadn't found pathology as a career, I guess it it depends on what point in my life, if you had asked me that, you know, if I was still getting my bachelor's in biology, I'd probably end up getting a PhD in something. But I don't think I would have the patience maybe to just study a single like organism, single type of receptor pathway, that sort of thing. I like seeing more of the big picture. So maybe I'd be out in the field somewhere though, collecting leeches or I don't know. (laughs) I can see that. That (laughs) Yeah. Now, if you ask me, gosh, I don't know what I would do now because now, you know, in my division chair role, I've taken on leadership and administrative duties, which I do enjoy. And I like working in teams and there's all sorts of opportunities for that. So I'd still probably be doing that, but maybe in a different field of science. Let's talk a little bit about that. Obviously, the gorilla in the room is COVID over the past year. And as a microbiologist, what has that been like? And what lessons from a leadership perspective have you taken Mm -hmm. away? Well, yeah, COVID basically took over all of our lives immediately. It changed everything. And there were a lot of good things that came out of it. But in general, I mean, it was a very, very challenging time. Our lab grew tremendously. One of our labs that did COVID testing started off as 20 20 employees, and they very quickly hired and grew to 200 employees. I mean, can you imagine just the stress of going from a workforce of 20 people working Monday through Friday, nine to five, eight to five, whatever, and then all of a sudden going to 200 people working 24 seven. And that was just one of our labs that did COVID testing. The other one also had a similar growth spurt. And then the labs that weren't doing COVID testing, all of their workers, we were pulling them into the COVID testing labs. And then somewhere right in the middle of that, I became chair. (laughs) So it was a bit of a chaotic time, but we have a really strong leadership team. So that was very helpful. We had already instituted daily huddles. Communication, that would be one of the big takeaway points. You have to have excellent communication. So we did lab huddles, safely distanced, six feet apart, but we had daily huddles in all of our work units. We had daily phone calls for a while, and then we finally dropped that down to like a couple times a week. So lots of touch base points, and we pulled it all together. I mean, some of the things we did, you know, are just incredible. Validating a test to bring up for use for clinical testing over a weekend when it normally would take three months. But instead, you pull together a team of 15 people and they're working basically all different shifts, you know, so that you have 24-7 coverage, you could get it done. Not that you'd want to work at that pace all the time, but it did really show what a team could do if they pulled together with a common goal and they knew what they had to accomplish. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I think that point you make about communication is so Mm -hmm. critical. And I think that really ties into the skills that we need as pathologists, right? Because there's that stereotype out there that if you have poor communication (laughs) skills, you know, throw them into pathology. And I think that stereotype, number one, is completely untrue based on the individual that I know in our field, but also in the work that we do, whether you're AP, whether you're CP, communication is such a critical part of being effective at your job. So you think about AP, mm-hmm. you're generating your product is a report, and that is communication. And if you can't communicate clearly with your clinical colleagues, either certainty or uncertainty or the diagnosis, you're not going to be an effective pathologist. If you're leading a clinical team in the lab and you're not communicating, you're not going to be effective. So I think that's a wonderful point to bring yeah. home. 
I agree, Sarah. It's at the root of everything we do. We have to be good communicators. And really, we are clinicians. You know, sometimes we talk about ourselves Mm -hmm. and we exclude ourselves from the definition of a clinician. But, you know, we're doing clinical care. We're not just like working in a research lab with leeches or whatever. (laughs) You know, we really are. Everything we do is about a patient. And, you know, for those of us that are looking in a microscope at at cells from a patient, you could even say that we're patient facing in a way. And of course, you're patient facing if you're performing FNAs and other procedures. But regardless of how you define it, I mean, we're an integral part of the patient care team. We have to be good communicators. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of communication, how did you get the idea to start a blog? Um, That's been a a huge way for you to communicate (laughs) with the world. Yeah, you know, that started because, well, it kind of went back to when I was a resident. I, every once in a while, would take a case. And of course, back then there were no blogs, you know, because <laughs> that was a while back. So uh, I would print out a picture and I'd hang it on the bulletin board. What is this? And then people would email me what they thought it was. And so I liked that. I thought it was kind of cool doing that. And I've always enjoyed teaching. So this was just another way to teach. Well, then I did my microbiology fellowship at Mayo Clinic and I was hired on staff and given this amazing opportunity to go to London, uh, to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and get a master's degree in parasitology as part of what's called a Mayo Foundation Scholar Program. It's something the Mayo brothers used to do. They'd send people out to get additional education and then bring them back. And so it was great for me. I didn't even have my first job yet, but I was going off getting this master's. And while I was there, I knew I was going to be seeing amazing material and I was leaving behind a lot of friends and colleagues. So I thought, well, I'll just start up my case of the week again. But this time I've been hearing about these things, you know, blogs and, you know, of course, then Facebook was just coming out and Twitter and these other things. And and so I decided to go digital. I went in, I found, I use a, a platform that's free. It's a Google product called Blogger. And I created a Facebook account for the first time. I did all the digital stuff. I created my name. Little did I know that the name of my blog and my Twitter handle were going to, you know, be with me all this time now yeah. since 2007. And I just started doing cases, very small audience at first. I would just email people when I had new cases, but then a few people would ask me to add them to my email distribution list. And then I really have to credit Jared Gardner. He's inspired so many people. He came up to me at a CAP or a USCAP meeting and said, why aren't you posting your cases on Twitter? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, well, I never really thought about that. So I started that. And every time I added a form of social media, I got more and more viewers, more and more people coming to my blog. So I created a Facebook page. I post cases on LinkedIn. I'm on some other listservs and it just grew from there. I never really put a lot of thought or time into like marketing it. I just kept up with it. I keep it regular. I try to always post a case every week and I try to keep it short and sweet and educational and fun. So even though it's been a while now, I haven't really changed my purpose or my style. It's just these short, fun cases every week. With the gross factor, as you mentioned, (laughs) (laughs) videos are always great when I have them. That's so amazing. I mean, I think that the the fact that you've been able to continue with that educational content for those of us who try to post educational cases, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook, it is work to find those cases and write them up. And, you know, I'm curious what your process has been for that. 
Mm -hmm. It is definitely a commitment. So I try to say every Monday, I'm going to post a case. I'm not always on time, but I try to do it every Monday and then post my answer by the end of the week. And if I don't, people will write to me and say, so what was it? Mm -hmm. So I guess now I have that accountability to my readers. So being really regular about it. Initially, it was just uh, cases from my own laboratory, but I've been very fortunate that people will donate cases. So I keep all of them in my archives. So now I can kind of just go to my archives and pull out uh, a previous case. I try to let a good amount of time pass so that it's not a recent case so that there's not any chance at all that someone would even suspect it's a recent case and think it might be their case. And also my most recent change is I partnered with the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp, Belgium, and they now contribute a case for the first Monday of every month. So so it's cool for them because they said it's, you know, a win-win. I really benefit because I get these amazing, beautiful cases from them. And then it increases their social media presence as well. So it's really been fun. Yeah. I mean, I think that really speaks to the power of social media in general, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, you know, we're kind of preaching to the choir here, but I think that synergy and ability to network and find like-minded people and organizations and institutions across the world and work together because you yeah. have similar goals in education, that is so amazing and powerful. And frankly, you know, it's fun. And in this pandemic, right, where you know, kind of more isolated than we usually are, and certainly yeah. for those of us who are extroverts, I think that the digital means of communication have really been a lifeline to maintain those professional networks and friendships. And so it's so true. And I know you do a lot of education with social media. And of course, you're so active. You know, you've been an inspiration as well, just the social media work that you do. I will sing the praises of social media. Now, when I first started, I wasn't quite sure what you know, if people would even want to see my cases on Twitter, but they could ignore them or unfriend me (laughs) if they don't want to follow me, you know, and I guess that's also the beauty of social media. But yeah, I now have contacts around the world that I never would have met had it not been for one of these forms of social media. And I'll include my blog in that as well, because there is that interactive component where people write in with comments. And I have people now that I consider to be good friends that I've still never met in person, um, like Idzi Potters from the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Belgium. I'd love to meet him someday. I get Christmas cards from him every year. I've seen pictures of his family, but I've never met him in person. And it was similar with us. You know, I met you on Twitter and Jared long before I met you in person. So yeah, you just build these really powerful relationships for our trainees. It's such a great opportunity for them to network and make connections. And I know that it helps with jobs and recruitment. Absolutely. Because you, you kind of have a sense of their personality. And I always say, yeah. you know, it, I, I love, I, I miss in-person meetings. I love in-person meetings. I love in-person socializing. I know. And so it's not a replacement for that. But, you know, think about it before social media, you would see each other at meetings a couple times a year, you know, you know, every year, oh, hey, you see once a year. Right. But now you have these little tiny touch points where you're kind of keeping up with your mm-hmm. friends, you know, almost every day. And I definitely think that the online friendships, they are real friendships, even if you've never met in person, because you have that relationship, you write papers together, you work together. And it, like I said, for me, it's just, it makes it so much more fun and much less isolated, especially. Absolutely. What have you seen in terms of changes in the culture and the use of these educational um, platforms? Well, I think it's just become very easy to adopt and much more 
prominent or prevalent in our societies like pathologists. I see a lot of pathologists on social media. There's still a few people who don't want anything to do with it. And that's that's okay. I'd say they're missing out, but <laughs> I completely understand. But I would say now things like Twitter are just really powerful for pathology. And now when people approach me and they say they want to do a blog like mine, I actually say, well, you might actually want to start with Twitter. It's a little less work. You're limited by characters. There's not that you know feeling of obligation to write a book on something. You just can really keep it short. And that's what most people do these days. So I would say that's something I've noticed now. Twitter's really taken off. The other areas as well, we have some great Facebook groups for some professional societies. And I post my blogs on those as well. It's very diverse. Yeah, I think that a lot of us use different platforms, because number one, if you're creating this content, you're creating this case, some people are on Facebook, but not on Twitter, there's different populations that use those different platforms. So I think it's great to kind of have a presence on different social media platforms. So shifting gears a little bit, a lot of what we think about in pathology, and maybe this is my personal bias is I think that a lot of pathology tends to be very AP heavy. And I think training mm-hmm. programs tend to be very AP having, do you have any advice for those who are really interested in microbiology? What are some of the different career paths. Yeah, well, I certainly faced that same, you know, those hurdles when I was a resident. It was in my second year of residency. And back then it was a five-year residency. So I still had a bit of time, but it was my second year. I started telling people, you know, I really like microbiology. And oh, my mentors are like, oh no, you're throwing your life away, your career away. And, you know, microbiologists are just the people that work up that little weird bacteria. And, you know, oh my and gosh, I, talk to them this year, huh? Oh my gosh. Gosh, right, for front and center. But I pursued it and, and I realized early on in a number of different ways how a CP career was a little more, I was a little bit better suited for that than AP. And so some of the advice I always give to my trainees is don't just look at the material, but look at what the pathologists are doing. And what I liked about clinical pathology is that every day is different, every hour is different. I don't have a stack of trays on my bench, you know, well, sometimes I do because I also do infectious disease pathology consults, but I'm not doing that every day. It's different every day. And for me, that was a So I said, you know, think about that. Also, going back to what got me into pathology, the dissection, that's actually not something that a lot of anatomic pathologists will do a lot of unless they're doing autopsies. Although you could, you know, see declining autopsy rates, which is unfortunate. And at Mayo, actually, we do tons of autopsies. But I wasn't sure that I wanted to make autopsy as a specialty for myself. And I wasn't really necessarily interested in forensics as much. Oh, and you mentioned early on, you know, what are the things that people find gross? I personally find stomach contents really gross. I could not go into forensics for that reason, because I don't care if they had pizza with mushrooms on it. That's really (laughs) gross. And I do not want to know that. So that kind of made me think, well, you know, I really like the dissection piece, but anatomic pathologists aren't usually grossing in their own specimens. And unless I'm doing autopsy, that's not something I'm probably going to be doing a lot of. So that was less of a draw to me for AP. I still like looking in the microscope. I still thought that, you know, things were beautiful, but I would argue microbiology is really beautiful too. And that's another 
thing that really drew me is looking at parasites, fungi, even bacteria under the microscope. It's really beautiful. A lot of the things that draw us to pathology as morphologists, you will find in microbiology. So with that long story, I'll say it really worked for me. And I was able to create this little niche. And because of that, I now tell everyone, if you're interested in an area, go for it. Do your research, of course, and look at what the pathologists are actually doing, not just what you learn when you're a resident, because that's very different than what you'll be doing as a final attending. But don't hesitate if you are really drawn to an area that's really unique. Well, good for you. That means that you're going to be one of very few people that actually do that. And the fact that you're going to be a pathologist means you're probably going to be in high demand. You know, there's other people that specialize in areas like microbiology and chemistry, but there's very few individuals that are pathologists that specialize in microbiology or chemistry or genetics for that matter. Although genetics is getting fairly common, but you know, genetics that doesn't have to do with anatomic pathology. So I just tell people, don't worry if you're going into an area that is rather unique for pathology. If it's really what you love, then that just means that you're going to be in high demand. You're going to be one of the few people that does that. Of course, on the flip side, it does mean jobs will be limited. So you have to be willing to perhaps move a bit to find the job where they really want you. Yeah. Thinking about the folks I know who really are passionate about CP pathology and practice Mm -hmm. CP pathology, they are all in positions of really important leadership within their institutions. They're definitely very highly sought after because like you say, individuals with those skill sets, there's less of them than, you know, your run of the mill cytopathology, (laughs) right? And I think that if you have leadership aspirations, having those skills is really, really valuable. Yeah, I agree. And I guess I I would also say that you could still even do both. You don't even have to limit yourself. Of course, if you're in a private practice, community practice, you might be doing a number of things. For me, I'm able to keep anatomic pathology as part of my day-to-day workflow and and responsibilities because I'm APCP boarded in addition to medical microbiology. And people wanted to bring me cases, show me cases where they had some sort of organism in it. I found a lot of anatomic pathologists don't feel comfortable when they see something that could be a microbiologist, <laughs> a microorganism. Yeah. <laughs> so, like for the first ten years of my career, I was just you know it like slowly picked up. People bring me first. It was just a case a week, and then it was a case a day, and then it was like a case an hour. And so then we actually recruited and hired another infectious disease pathologist to our service, Dr. Audrey Schutz, who's also APCP trained and Med Micro trained. So we became a working group of two people. We were the small working group in anatomic pathology and the cases just keep pouring in. We're getting directed consults. We're signing out now. So now we're hiring a third person as an infectious disease pathologist. So that's really exciting. And and we rotate. So I'm part AP, even though my primary responsibilities are in CP. So again, that just goes to what I enjoy is doing different things, knowing my responsibilities will differ from day to day or even hour to hour. Yeah, it keeps you on your toes. And I certainly know coming from the AP side, like I said, I pointed to myself when you were saying that (laughs) a lot of anatomic pathologists are not comfortable with that. But all the time I see in social media groups, people posting a cross section through some kind of parasite and going, what is this? You know, we had an infamous case in one of my groups of a banana that was submitted as a parasite, (laughs) which we still always laugh about. There's definitely that huge need. And it's really helpful to have that expertise, even if you're, you know, an anatomic pathologist. And like you say, a lot of us don't have 
those skills. So that's amazing that you have what's going to be a three-person group. So next time I see something weird, I'm going to send it your way for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're really excited about having our third person join. And that'll mean one of us is on service every three weeks, you know, and the other two weeks we're doing our other things. It's going to be a great combo. Yeah, that's great. So I know that you mentioned that your days are very different from day to day, but I wondered if you could kind of, for our listeners, talk about like, what are some sample days in the life of oh, sure. a microbiologist? Yeah, well, it's really cool that I get to do clinical care, education, and research every day. And so I carry a pager and I get called by our other clinical colleagues, and I'll say our other because I count myself as a clinician as well, about patients that might be at Mayo Clinic. Because Mayo Clinic Laboratories is a reference laboratory, we also get calls from people all around the country, anyone who sends us specimens. So I'm answering those calls doing clinical work. And then being in the parasitology lab as the lab director, you know, it's one of the few labs where we still get things that are moving. So if we (laughs) get something that comes in that's live, then they'll call me in to look at it. And then I call all the residents and the fellows and we all go look at it. So we're kind of doing that clinical care and that's sprinkled throughout my day. But then I have a lot of meetings, too many actually, Mm -hmm. especially with COVID right now, but I'll meet with my research technologist. I'll meet with students. We have our pathology residency. We also have our microbiology fellowship and I'm the program director for that. So I'm meeting with my fellow regularly. And then of course, we have all sorts of people who rotate through infectious disease physicians. So I'm doing a lot of education, then of course, giving lectures. So a typical day might have a smattering of all those things, going into the lab to look at a cool specimen, answering a page and talking about a patient that might be in the hospital. And we're trying to figure out what that patient has then going to give a lecture, then meeting with my lab staff about administrative stuff, then meeting with my development technologist to talk about a new test we're bringing in, you know, and then more meetings. But pre-COVID, it was actually a nice mix of getting up, walking around, seeing other people, going into the lab, looking at cool specimens. And so, yeah, it's always a little different, always exciting. Yeah, I, I feel like you, you've given the message that if you want to be a microbiologist, you should be able to multitask because it sounds like yeah. you have <laughs> a lot of different activities you're doing. And the idea of going to see the live uh, moving specimens <laughs> is so fascinating because that's something that I've not gotten a lot of in, mm-hmm. in my training. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But that's, <laughs> so do you get that often? Like how often a week do you go and see a moving parasite? Well, it all depends. We get ticks in the summertime, you know, and actually the ticks are starting Mm -hmm. to come out. Those we get every day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they're still alive when people Mm -hmm. send them in. But other specimens would be less common, you know, cases of strongyloides. Um, I actually just posted one on my blog with a video. Recently. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, a few other random things that come in. Usually it's the bugs that are still moving. Fleas, you have to be careful about fleas. They'll they'll jump out of the container if you're not careful. (laughs) And then you're like, like, oh, darn, where did it go? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, we, we've never lost a flea in the lab. <laughs> uh, you know, scabies, scabies mites, and our dermatopathology colleagues, of course, see those. And on skin scrapings, they're still alive if you're just looking at them as a wet mount. Those are the kinds of things we get mostly. Interesting. I'm curious about, so do people send fleas for identification purposes? Are there different kinds yep. of fleas that I should be aware of? 
There are many different types of fleas, although the identification is not so important. I think people are sending them because they don't know what they are. They just know that they have something that's infesting them. And, you know, maybe that's in their, you know, bed linens or on their chair or or they're getting bitten by something and they Mm -hmm. find an insect on them and then they send it in and they don't know if it's a bed bug or some weird beetle. And, And I guess that's one of the challenges in our lab is we literally get anything you could find. And a lot of it's not a human parasite at all. (laughs) And those we don't try to, you know, we're not entomologists. So if it's not an arthropod of medical significance, we just say not a human parasite. Yeah, so I don't think they know that it's a flea. They just know it's something that's biting them and then Uh they send it in. Gotcha. Sorry, you saw my face. (laughs) I was actually having, oh yes, having small children and cats. I have, I have seen and identified fleas and lice. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to edit that out, but I should probably just (laughs) to to keep it real, to keep it real. Yeah. Oh, it's so common. Um, It's a part of life, you know. And I think that, that the question of whether it is or is not a parasite is is actually very helpful mm-hmm. um, because I have definitely seen in some groups people saying, you know, my kid claims that they found this thing in their stool. What right. is it? And I'm like, that is clearly an earthworm. That is not a human parasite. And it's funny you mentioned that, Sarah. That actually just came up today. It's so (laughs) funny you mentioned that. Where I am right now in Minnesota, we've had a lot of rain and there's earthworms out all over the place. And of course, all of our sewage, our pipes go through the the ground into the dirt and you get tree roots and other things that grow into them and create little microscopic cracks and earthworms will get into pipes. And actually earthworms can swim really well and they'll vigorously swim up your septic system into your toilet bowl. And so I would say at least once a week, maybe every other week, we get an earthworm submitted and it's always just found in toilet. Wow. I had no idea that, and I I have known, you know, again, through personal experience with plumbing, that tree roots can grow into oh, yeah. tips and block them and create issues. I had no idea that earthworms could swim upstream. I, oh. yeah. If you go to my blog and there is a search bar at the upper left-hand corner, you could type in earthworm and you'll find a video where they're like actively swimming and thrashing around, but they're your classic oh. earthworm. They have that little band-like structure. My lab's gotten really good at identifying them, <laughs> even if they're just little baby ones. Wow. Wow. Yeah. See, I always just assumed it was, you know, a mischievous kid finding an earthworm oh. outside and putting, yeah, because I can see my kids doing that for sure. <laughs> Not to say that they didn't do that, but <laughs> but it, they really could have found it in the wow. toilet. And then there's wow. other things like drain flies, sewer flies. There's some that lay their eggs in water, like toilet bowl water, and then they hatch and you get these aquatic larvae, like mosquito larvae. If you've oh ever seen God. mosquito yeah. larvae oh, yes. and they're in your water. And of course, again, they're in your toilet bowl. People see them and I, you know, would be understandably upset as well if I didn't know anything about it. So we we get a lot of those submissions as well. It is fascinating. I feel like there's just so, I mean, there's so many things that you learn about as a pathologist. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, part of me is like, well, the more you know, the more things you can fear in your life that one day you're going (laughs) to look into your plumbing and you're going to see some earthworms swimming. (laughs) I just always tell people, yeah, just know what's out there and then you can just say, okay, that's just part of life. It's okay. (laughs) Just like the Dima decks. You could totally freak yourself out by thinking about things crawling on your skin. 
I would just say, don't think about it. They're there. They're part of your body, just like you have bacteria in your gut. Exactly. And you want to have those bacteria in your gut. If you don't have them, you'll actually have bad problems. So just think of it as part of the ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, your little your little friends that are always yeah. with you. You're never alone, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you are so busy with your work. Tell us a little bit about what you do um, outside of pathology. Yeah, well, a couple of things. One of them actually goes back to what I always enjoy growing up and that was art and I found a way to combine pathology and art but I also just do art for art's sake for quite a time I was painting oil mostly on canvas sometimes watercolor for a while I was even doing art shows and selling them but now I just like keep the stuff that I have and hang it on my walls but then I kind of went into more photography, again, going back to the idea that pathology is beautiful, seeing things under the microscope and snapping photographs and then making calendars and posting pictures, hanging them on my wall. And so that's been my latest creative outlet. I actually, I should say my actual latest thing is I'm working on a coloring book for parasites. Oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it's very early on. And I think I'm going to start just with postcards with big, like a big reduvid bug, you know, the one that transmits mm. Chagas disease, yep. do a series of big bugs on postcards, the kind of coloring ones that adults would want to color, yeah, not yeah. so much for children, but with like intricate details, maybe make it educational as well. Ooh, so that's that. what I do for fun. And then I also have an, well, I have my husband and we have an old house. It was built in 1907. So we enjoy fixing it up as well. Oh, excellent. Well, that sounds like definitely something to keep you busy. Mm -hmm. You'll definitely have to keep me updated on the coloring book postcards because that sounds yeah, totally. like a, I mean, a kind of a very pathology uh, specific way to relieve stress, covering mm -hmm. coloring in an intricate reduvid bug. I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, I uh, with all of us being on Zoom these days, I find that it's helpful for me to do something just kind of mindless, like coloring or doodling. Otherwise, the temptation to start checking email is too mm -hmm. great. And so I started coloring. I thought, well, boy, wouldn't it be fun if I had a coloring book? So that's where this all came out of, actually, was uh, COVID great. and Zoom. Yeah, the pandemic has definitely spurred us to be creative in different mm -hmm. ways, maybe than we would have before. Um, so some of the silver linings, maybe new hobbies, new talents, and hopefully a new coloring book. <laughs> so, that's awesome. People have told me that they wouldn't expect me to do art. But then when they find out that I do like to paint and draw, they say it makes sense especially with the, all the photographs of parasites that I've been doing and calendars. And then of course, like with my blog, well, I think all of us do this. We take pictures and we've all learned, you know, to make a photograph look really nice and just line it up just right where you want the glands, the cells, the bug, whatever. I think there's so much of what we do is visual in pathology, whether you're mm -hmm. CP or AP, right? And so I think yeah. a lot of attra what attracts us to the field is that it's visually interesting or beautiful or fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think that from the outside perspective of someone who's not a pathologist, it can be maybe a little surprising to think like pathology and art and, art. and you know, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to really go together. But I think in our day to day life, you know, we are visual, we look for that perfect photo, whether it's for a textbook or for a calendar, yeah. and we work with that all the time. And so it 
makes perfect sense to me too. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this coloring book, by the way. I think that's my big announcement, the coloring book. Now I have to live up to it. See, I've set an expectation. <laughs> I've actually already drawn out my first reduvid bug. So I'm going to move oh on to bed bugs God. and whatnot next. Uh, oh, bed yeah. bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea of turning something that is potentially terrifying <laughs> into something that can be relaxing. So I, I really like oh, that. Yeah, that's Maybe. a good analogy. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for it could be it could be a way to like let out frustrations. You can have lice in there, fleas. <laughs> yeah, <you know? laughs> that's probably what I'll do. I'm sure I'll have a louse, a flea, maybe a mosquito. And I think that that will be really a, just yet another way that you've contributed to make pathology and microbiology a more fun space for everyone. <laughs> so thank you oh, so thank much, you. Dr. Pritt, for being on the show today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for all you've done to teach and share your enthusiasm for pathology and microbiology. And again, to hear more from Dr. Pritt, you can follow her on Twitter at ParasiteGal and see her amazing educational cases at ParasiteWonders.blogspot.com. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Pritt. Thank you. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. PathPod.